0: A werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. Listeners should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions.
1: Welcome to the woof den, everybody. This is Dan David coming at you with the pack, and by the pack, I mean, yeah, Carl the Sound Guy. Sound Carl, yes. Oh, is it Sound Carl now? Sound Carl. (laughs) There's a trademark on it. (laughs) You you disgust me. You (laughs) you actually, you actually like short Carl the Sound Guy for your fan club, and now it's Sound Carl. Sound Carl, yes. Yes. You're sick. Carl needs to be careful today because our guest couldn't get him drunk and at his convenience, have a small group of indigenous people stomp him with horses. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. Retired Master Sergeant Scott Neal is a veteran of the U.S. Special Forces Green Berets with executive and operational and combat experience. In addition to his speaking engagements, he is a regular contributor on Fox News, CNN, Newsmax, Global News, L.A. Times, Bloomberg, and Businessweek. He is also the chief operating officer of Horse... Soldier Bourbon. Yes. Yes.
2: I don't know how many times people get that right. Depends on how many drinks they have, they start to slur it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, you know what? When people start to slur Horse Soldier Bourbon, you know you're having a good time.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yes.
1: (laughs) Which uh, we're going to talk about today along with his military exploits. Scott's military career has seen him in almost every combat and conflict zone across the globe. Following the events of 9-11, he conducted numerous successful special operation combat missions as a part of Commanders in Extremist Forces, one of the first to lead the direct action and counterterrorism charge into Afghanistan. And I do mean charge in Afghanistan. We'll talk more about that and the horses. As you can imagine, Scott has been blown up several times, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll get into that as well. Awesome. Eventually, he was sent to recover and continue services at headquarters and Special Operations Command. Scott is an important voice for veteran community, legitimately doing God's work as a part of his drive to help combat veterans receive necessary support to ensure their successful reintegration into civil society. While working at the Green Beret Foundation, Scott developed and launched a transition and resiliency program for the Green Berets called The Next Ridgeline that has been featured in Veterans Day tributes by Google and the National Museum, 9-11 Museum. Scott, welcome. Yay. That was a long one. That guy's awesome. I want to meet him too. (laughs) I'll tell you when you meet him, number one, everybody calls him Scotty. Is that cool? Yes. Do we call you Scotty here? Well, you
2: can call me Scotty, you know, on special forces teams are very close knit. You know, there's only 12 of us and one of the first teams i served on there were three scots yeah right so it was scott scooter and scotty so i was the youngest at the time so i got the scotty and this kind of well it could have been scooter so <laughs>
0: it could have been you worse know, it's
2: funny a scooter but scooter unfortunately can't scoot because he lost both of his legs you know a few years back
1: that became ironic that's terrible
2: yeah see but you know life is triumphs and tragedies and you know what you see and you'll hear in this story we'll talk about is how a bunch of friends grew up together in service and and now we serve bourbon
1: well tell us about your story and and we'll talk about the bourbon because i've tried it i've tried it with you it's great and i and i will say before you get into your story i even visiting my father in michigan got a liquor store to start carrying your bourbon and i think he's Uh, doing okay
2: yeah, we just uh, opened up Michigan. I think Mark, the horse soldier commander, was there doing a bottle signing outside of Detroit the week, you know, right before the New Year's. And Michigan, obviously, is a kind of a control franchise. Not a franchise, but a control state. We're we're waiting for it to blossom as the mechanisms of the state start working this magic on getting this distributed. Well,
1: good luck to you in Pennsylvania.
2: Yeah, LCB. You know, this business, I, I think, is more clever and interesting than just making bourbon that we've discovered it's people it's bureaucracies it's fiefdoms it's million dollar brands that want to squat on you know small craft. in the beginning of all of this we thought we would just make what we thought was great whiskey and that would be enough and that's not enough
1: no no you gotta, it, it rarely is this is a, a lifetime of full-time work well I hope you're finding it rewarding, especially after what you had to go through for, you know, decades. And tell us about your military career. How did you matriculate there? And what what was that all about? And, and, you know, shortly after 9-11. So, you know, I joined the Army back in
2: 1986. Uh, Always wanted to be in the Army, play cops and robbers and cowboys and Indians and Think like anybody else, I burnt my share of army men with magnifying glasses. <laughs> so, right out of high school, I joined the infantry and I went to Fort Ord, California. That was 1986. Of course, for those that remember, Panama was a kind of a small excursion, live fire exercise where we beat up some third world countries. And after that, I uh, wanted to join the special forces. So, I went through the assessment selection process. And out of the 360, I went through selection with 60, made it to the end. And out of that 60, 42, finally went on to become Green Berets. Wow. So in 1993, I went to the 5th Special Forces Group at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and our area of focus was the Middle East. So I started going in for usually about four to six months at a time, you know, anywhere from Kuwait. To Kenya to Ethiopia, Eritrea, Yemen, Oman, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Uzbekistan, Kajikistan, Pakistan
1: yeah, all of these quiet paradises that you could just go relax you know all the best spots you know we get the vacation before we we continue one, I guess this means you were you were in Desert Storm but Two, I think listeners want to know sometimes what's the difference between a green beret and an army ranger?
0: Well, number one, you start with the color of the hat.
1: Yeah, okay. I'm with you so yeah, far.
0: Yeah, yeah. There you go. Easy to identify. Yes, the green beret
1: is the hat. Yeah. So I'm going I'm guessing it's a beret. It's a beret. Okay.
2: So there's an umbrella.
1: And imagine
2: this umbrella's big curvature of special operations. So special. Operations. An operation could be a hostage rescue. It could be foreign internal defense. It could be unconventional warfare. It could be weapons of mass destruction. Those are the operations. Then you have the operator. And the operator is trained and focuses on a certain set of those operations. So, Delta Force. Tends to focus on direct action, counterterrorism, and weapons of mass destruction. Army Rangers, direct action, a little bit of strategic reconnaissance. Green Berets, direct action, strategic reconnaissance, and unconventional warfare. Navy SEALs, hair care products, uh, <laughs> swimsuits, and book writing. Oh,
1: wow. Oh, that's fantastic. Wow. I, do we do, do we have a drop the gauntlet thing here? Yeah.
2: But you know, but those are the operators that do operations, right? So when you say, what is the difference? Yeah, okay, Uh, distinctive headgear, yes. Rangers tend to be out of high school, they're younger, they're in a 60 person, 60 man, kind of uh, fighting element, so they're they're organized different. Green Berets are in 12 men, you know, one officer, one warrant, one master sergeant, and the rest are E-7s or E-6s with varying skills. Well,
1: that's pretty high up there, though, E-7s and 6s. You've done some time, then. The average Green Beret tends
2: to already have 10 years in service and be about 30 years old, whereas Seals and Rangers, the average age is 20 22, really spry, very fit, right, but more of the uh, hammer, where Green Berets tend to be more mountain men and Leatherman tool aspects. So think of a big toolbox for the commander, he sees what the mission is, he pulls out the tool set and deploys a tool set against the problem.
1: Mm -hmm. So your commander refers to you as tools. Yeah. Yeah. And you say, yes, sir. Yeah, that's where it all comes from.
2: See, the the military originates a lot of our modern day
1: slang. You know what? That is a true fact. Yes. You were in Desert Storm for, I mean, I don't know if you were Green Beret then, but you, you, I mean, you were in the military. No, I missed Desert
2: Storm. I was going through the training and it was over just like that.
1: It was pretty quick. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it was yeah. It was as fast as a first time could be. But when I finally got the fifth Special Forces Group, my very first Special Forces teams are the ones that ran the Kuwaiti underground. So when we would go back to Kuwait, they knew all the leadership of the military, all of the royal family. It was a different time in the '90s, post Gulf War. But remember, we were always on edge for Saddam and any of his activities. So we would always do a rotation maybe once a year. But there was always a company of Green Berets in Iraq after the Gulf War.
1: Yeah. And for all of you financial geniuses Mm -hmm. who were in high school during the financial crash of 2008, Desert Storm takes you way back. We're talking 1990-ish. And it was a huge buildup, like you would not believe going into this much bigger force than we actually had for the the second Iraq war. But George Bush Sr., being the most underrated president in my time and one of my favorites, was smart enough to say, okay, we did this, and I don't want to own it. (laughs) So we're leaving.
2: At the time, it was called the Powell Doctrine for Colin Powers as the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which was basically hit and quit it.
1: Hit and quit it, yeah.
2: Hit and quit it. Wow. You know what I mean? We don't own it. We just break it.
1: Hit it and quit it. I like
2: it. That's exactly (laughs) what he did. But there's a little known fact with President Bush Sr., and I've got to know President Bush Jr.-ish, I'll call him, is Saddam tried to assassinate President Bush.
1: Really? I don't know that that's a little... Oh, you you didn't know that. I, I did not know that. Yeah. Within a month or two. Yeah. After Desert Storm.
0: And his son took it personal. So
2: fast forward.
1: <laughs> well, and, and, and Cheney and Rumsfeld took yeah. it very personally. I, I well, yeah. used it as, as, as an excuse, but Clinton was president by the time the reaction to that was doled out. Yeah. And I believe Clinton sent, like three cruise missiles in an area where Saddam might have hunted. I don't know, but like there was no chance of killing the guy. He just sent a couple of... Yeah. And yeah. Jr. was supremely insulted. Is that correct? I believe your recollection is nearly accurate. Okay, well, correct me. (laughs)
2: No, no, it is. So I say all these things in jest, but what people forget is 1990 was what we call the first Gulf War. It was this doctrine of overwhelming force. All of the statistics of the Iraqi army, the fifth largest uh, mechanized motorized modern army with new Soviet equipment and, and air assets and everything. They went in heavy. And they decimated them and routed them biblically and pushed them to what the military objective was, is to expel them out of Kuwait. And then that turned into kind of this rotation of armor brigades because they had a whole desert to play around in yeah. and a whole bunch of Iraqi equipment laying around that it became this kind of annual kind of uh, test of leadership and deployment kept on all the way until the invasion of 2003.
1: Well, yeah. And when we, we, we did push them out in record time. And as a matter of fact, the, the toughest thing about the Iraqi army was catching them from behind. <laughs> I mean, they were, these guys were fleet of foot. Well,
2: you know, remember he was stuck half of his uh, infantry in a foxhole with a five-gallon can. They couldn't surrender fast enough, which was part of the delaying tactic. And then he had battles of seventy-three Easting, right? This big maneuver tank battle in which our small Bradley vehicles were outgunning the modern tank. So that's where McMaster's of fame came from. All of that. And the biggest takeaway was when they set all the oil fields on fire. Yeah. They thought it would take 10 years to put them out. And then some Ukrainians put a jet engine on the back of a T-55 tank and blew them out like candles within three weeks.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and then we made Basra the line. Yeah. Right. We just pushed everybody north of Basra, kind of-ish, for a while. Yeah. And there was that betrayal kind of feeling, basra felt like, because they were predominantly Shia, were not protected in the end from the Sunni dictator, Saddam.
2: Yes. Then you had these no-fly zones, right, from the Kurds in the north to some of the uh, cities in the south. And, you know, once again, these are details that the average citizen, maybe you remember, but haven't really understood the complexity that led up to the invasion again in 2003. So they were a lot of loose ends. So when you take the Powell doctrine of smash and dash, there's a lot of loose ends and we spent 10 years trying to figure it out. Well, okay, we invade Iraq again and guess what? We're spending another 10 years trying to figure it out.
1: Well, I guess, I, I guess going to 9-11, mm-hmm. look, if, if, you're, if you're just listening to your enemy at any, any point in time, the fact that we used Saudi Arabia and then kept a base there became the focal point, in their words, for, <laughs> for attacking us. And then they did throughout the nineties. They they went after the World Trade Center once. Yep. Unfortunately for us during Clinton administration. Yep. They blew up a warship, the USS Cole. Yep. Again, unfortunately, in that administration. And we didn't do much about either of those things. And then came 9-11. So, once
2: again, let's go even further back, into way back. During the invasion of Afghanistan by the Russians, we supported what was a loose-knit, kind of the, the Mujahideen. Now, Mujahideen are a little bit different than Jihad, right? Mujahideen are more of the local fighters, you know, who live in the area that come together and they've been the same assembly of fighters against the British and, you know, the hordes of Hannibal and everything. Then uh, when the Soviets invaded, it was a good time to send our CIA and Green Berets in there to test some of our newly- Yeah, stingers minted equipment like Stinger missiles because the Soviets had air power and they could drop bombs from altitudes. So it disrupted the war, but then on a call to Jihad, you had these, these more- Fundamentalists fundamentalists that already had started in Pakistan in madrasas. And what's important is called the third son. If you uh, grow up in a Muslim family, your first son inherits your father's business, your second son escorts mom out of the village and can go grocery stopping the third son sits on a rock and looks at the the goats. And, and I'm paraphrasing this, but they become vulnerable to be recruited to go for further
1: education in madrasas. Well, and madrasa is just another word for school.
2: It, it is uh, kind of that uh, religious awakening to become on the journey. So there was already this process for hundreds of years to identify those in the family that could be recruited and sent to this furthering education than they would be on their own preaching journey elsewhere. So now they use that pipeline and formula to rally like-minded fundamentalists in Afghanistan where they could train and create each other. And because they didn't have MTV or Nintendo, they would talk about this idea of this perfect space on earth and they could have the power to create that. Then they, I call it the jihadi VFW. Then that cadre broke apart after the war. They went back to the Four Corners. Some became wealthy, some became even more radicalized. Some came into power through politics. And you had various groups organized. One of those was Al Qaeda. And, you know, that began the path of Afghanistan as a training ground, Pakistan and Madrasas as a pipeline for bodies which you know led us into small actions. Now, if I'm nobody and I wanna be somebody, I've gotta fight Mayweather and I gotta fight Ali. And so a lot of these were just considered sucker punches to gain credibility, not for our distraction, but for their fundraising and recruiting efforts, right? Right. See, we can deliver this, we can do these things. And I think we discounted their total belief and their lifelong mission to establish a calivate and then dislodge America's financial power and military power out of the middle. East. See, here we are. We're 30 minutes into it. We just had a history of the world. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, look, you're, you're right, but we, we discounted the fact that when your school, madrasas, are solely dedicated to not educating in science, math, language, things of this nature, but dedicated toward fighting this imperialist power, whether it be Russia, the United States, or anybody else, and Islam, above all else, and the word of it, ignorance prevails. I mean, you just, you don't know a better life. Um, I'll help you reshape that. Okay. They weren't fighting schools. They were, in
2: their religion, no different than a seminary a place that focused on the study and the aspects of following the path of enlightenment of the Quran.
1: I thought I just said that.
2: I'm <laughs> just, just giving you the wave top.
1: Okay. All right.
2: Underneath what it turned into was... Boy, that person used to be a doctor. He went on the path, and he's here today. I bet you they have critical skills we may need over here. And just like our ROTCs come on the campuses, right, and said, wouldn't you like to be a Marine, son? It's, let's not forget, we have the same mechanisms in our own institutions yeah. here. Yeah. So that's what it became. It became an age-old method to take a certain amount of males from the family that really didn't have a hierarchy, and the family was proud to send them on their journey. They self-funded, they did fundraisers. Then they would go to madrasas. Some were what they were meant to be, and others were infestations of radicalization. And they would pick a certain class for warriors. They would pick a certain class for service and support. They would pick a certain class that might want to meet their ends And suicide bombings, all of that was filtered. And so, you know, once again, why was America's attention a turn to Afghanistan in 2001? Because it had been going on for 15, 17 years, right? And all of that old Soviet armor equipment, weapons, blasting caps, all of that was just stockpiled and left there. So they had the capability to train themselves, form committees. They would buy airport commercial grade metal detectors and test snakes, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, now you're getting a little too spunky. Yeah. So all of this was happening while America's view on real aggression was North Korea, China, Iran, uh, Russia. And so what did they do? They would punch upwards and, and do these attacks, but the attacks didn't serve to topple America in the beginning. They served to bring credibility, to bring more funding to their endeavors. Look, we're on the radar and we could we can, you know, do things too.
0: We blow up more shit than anybody else. Come join us.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems that was effective to a degree. And uh, it's fascinating, and it makes complete sense that, (laughs) yeah, of course, everybody would would believe they have this equipment left over from the Russians' invasions, and even better equipment today, I might add, (laughs) after our debacle, but just savvy and smart to have those metal detectors and start testing out what they had
2: done. That's when you transition from a hobbyist, right, to junior state sponsored. You know what I mean? When you're using commercial access to technologies for security and defense, and then you uh, have research and development activity that helps you bypass detection, you know, overcome some things, um, you know, all of that happens every day. And why are we always worried about a North Korea or Iran or some of these other things. It's, it's not because we're worried about North Korea invading us. It's because they're a proxy for advanced weapons testing and the world will bitch about North Korea.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. So what was 9-11 like for you? I mean, because that changed the course of your life more dramatically than most people.
2: I think 9-11, we were on a training exercise on the Cumberland River in Kentucky You know, like say we're at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and we were getting ready on one October to go in the Middle East anyways, a normal rotation. I was part of a group at the time that was called the um, Commanders and Extremist Forces, and that was just a tool to be in the area that could immediately respond to some kind of activity, whether it's a embassy or a cruise line or think any kind of counterterrorism activity. And you trained for that? Yeah, it was fun. Got to blow a lot of doors and windows and buildings and shoot guns and yeah. be sniper ninjas. Awesome. Right? The Army issued us throwing stars. So, uh, cool. During that weekend leading up to 9 11, we uh, had some of our sniper observer teams out on a mock kind of farm reporting. Uh, terrorist training activity. And all of this wasn't because we thought we knew 9-11 was happening. It was just a training scenario so we could certify through the element that we're ready to go overseas. And in Special Forces, you have two teams that are kind of sister teams. One was 595 and ours is our other specialized team. And I remember when, when the morning of 9-11, our intel sergeant came in and he wrote on our whiteboard in our kind of planning facility that the World Trade Center has been hit. And we actually thought it was just part of the training exercise. We had no access to TV. So we're like, okay, we're in this counter-terrorism scenario. Okay, why are they attacking the World Trade Center? So an hour later, he comes in and says, the second World Trade Center has been hit. And we're like, okay, complex attack, You know what does the World Trade Center represent, the financial institutions, the United States, blah, blah, blah. We started sending in requests for information on our training exercise portal. And it wasn't until four hours later that uh, Colonel Mulholland came in and said, stop what you're doing, this is for real. And if you did see the movie 12 Strong, we went to the mess hall like everybody else and saw it on CNN. So that's how it began.
1: Yeah, this is all based on as well, we should say, and you know, Carl, screw up number one. (laughs) There is a movie called Twelve Strong that is based upon your experience and the horse soldiers. Yes. And I did I did see it, so that's how that went. You guys went in the mess hall and and there's the debriefing.
2: Yes. And just like you saw in this fabulous Hollywood movie. (laughs) Every aspect is absolutely true to include how good looking Chris Hemsworth is. You look just like him. I wasn't Chris Hemsworth, number one. Because that's the first lie. Bullshit. Mark isn't isn't that good looking.
1: You're not actually, your name's not in it, right? Like as far as the guy. I was the horse. You were the horse.
2: Yes. I was a gallant black steed. Yeah. that, uh, That they rode in on. So... The first awareness of this all came from the book, Horse Soldiers from Doug Stanton. Of course, Doug came in and interviewed everybody. Not everybody was still alive. Not everybody was still on the team. So you got a small perspective. We were, most guys were kind of voluntold that they need to tell the story. Right. That's why all the names in it are fake sononyms and not real ones, because we were all still so operational. And you had a lot of filler about of and some of the other command teams coming in. Yeah. So when Jerry Bruckheimer bought the script rights, Disney shelved the ability for him to write it for several years until he bought it back. He then had a script writer get with Jerry Bruckheimer, not Bruckheimer, but uh, Doug Stanton. They developed the script. And once again, Doug didn't know really the true story. Then they began the filming process of so Bruckheimer, hired his favorite military advisor, who was a Navy SEAL, and his Navy SEAL called his Navy SEAL buddies and they began to design the movie the outfits all this other stuff and it wasn't until five days into filming that mark and bob were invited on set and that was on friday and by sunday the lawyers asked them to leave and that's about it
1: (laughs) well (laughs) all right well the movie will get will show you soldiers riding on horses killing the enemy but like I think that happened. So uh, tell us what did happen. Ish. Ish. Yeah.
2: This big scene of a proud gallant European black horse and full war rating saddle and shooting from the hip at a gallant run led by the commander of ODA fight bullshit. Uh-huh. Okay. Cranky, janky Mustang horses with carpets over a piece of wood it was the Afghans that led wave after wave against direct fire tanks, you know what I mean? Rocket fire, everything. Green Berets, we enable our indigenous partners to be successful, but yeah. it's their battle to fight.
1: What are 12 of you gonna do? I mean, you're dropped into a war zone, what was it, a week or two after 9-11? On the 19th of October, 2001,
2: you think about it, the bombing started on October 7th, and then the Air Force is like, really, we're hitting, oh, I just got a pile of rocks. Oh, we bombed a pile. They had no, there was no traditional targeting that an Air Force hits, a bridge, a power station, a command center. They had no clue. Right. So that's when it was like, we got to shift gears along with our CIA partners to understand what is going on on the ground, what is the order of battle from the Taliban army, what influence and uh, support did uh, al-Qaeda provide in leadership and fighters, there was a big question mark. So insertion of Green Beret's teams is basically go figure it out. Right. And tell me what's going on, paint a picture. And so nobody knew things were going to be on horseback.
0: I mean, before you even get dropped in, like, how do you even find the, like, hey, this guy will side with me rather than the, yeah, yeah, I'll be your friend, uh, open this briefcase here.
1: Yeah. How do you how do you not get dropped into unfriendly fire? So, General Dosum had already
2: known some congressional aides from his exile in Turkey. So, they are very savvy business people and understand the politics of the world. When 9-11 happened, he actually called them and said— I know who did it. I got the forces. I just need American support. So they actually won the Super Bowl on
1: 9-11. But they got paid.
2: They know who did it. They were already fighting them. They had loose organizations. And what America had to understand is, you know, who was a credible player, who had a fighting spirit that would want to, you know, go on, who had legitimacy that potentially could form a new government. So there's a thousand, I don't know, questions. Well, guess what? What is the tool set?
1: Green Braves, go figure it out.
2: Yep. <laughs> so you get on this helicopter, fly to this location. Nobody's coming to get you. Maybe we'll see you in the springtime and here's two batteries, go.
1: Yeah. Oh. Here's two batteries, drop you out of a helicopter, go. Yeah.
2: So remember, it just wasn't one team Altogether, I think there was less than a hundred green berets and in a hundred days we had overtaken Afghanistan along with our CIA partners. Yes, we had some Ranger elements and uh, some other national assets that were focused on a few things, but it really was faster than the Gulf war. And in 2003, the Iraqi war, that's how fast it was over.
1: With just a few less, you know, operators. Yeah. Yeah. Like tens of th- hundreds of thousands less
2: Here's your country. You're welcome.
1: Yeah, <laughs> no. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, is a. You are an American hero. I mean, people throw that around, mm. but you are not the least of which I heard you tell this story and you give a great presentation. And as we were. Whiskey helps. Well, the whiskey came later. And as I, I remember when I'm talking to you, i was like, oh, I'm going to have to ask Scotty this question because I'm kind of an animal lover. Scotty, did you, did you have this horse that you really kind of fell in love with that saved your life, that you thought was great? And you're like, are you kidding me? These things were barely donkeys. Uh, you, think, you think they're going to give us their best horse? They gave us their worst horse, and those horses were terrible. Yes. And you had no interest in taking one back with you.
2: Different horse every day. No, because as soon as we found a truck, we took the truck. Think about the video <laughs> game at Man Mad Max. <laughs> Fuck this horse. I'm getting in that, you know, technical truck. Screw this technical truck. I got a tank. (laughs) So imagine, you know, we're already went native as, you know, we love to say, and you could do what you wanted to do and you had to do, and you needed to do right Yeah. And, you know, once again, you're building 12 could do nothing. 300 could do something. 5,000 did a lot right so if you come from that mindset of by with and through and then technology enables your force to fight better than the opponent they're fighting you know what i mean why was the taliban better than the mujahideen fighters because they had all the old russian equipment right they were were ivy league educated um you know what i mean graduates of military structured school it's because one guy had a horse and the other one had a tank that's yeah. Now, when you disrupt that, think of your movie, your TV show, Star Wars, right? You don't go down to the planet with all your phasers and tricorders and all the other stuff. You go there and you make them a little bit better than their enemy and you let them fight for it and you let them die for it and you support them with some military consulting. You support them with imagery and satellite communications. You support them with verified just-in-time close-air support, right? Because what we worried about is them bombing their other buddies. Like, woohoo, I could be king of the world. Let me get rid of my rival. (laughs) Well, we're using his rival as well. We use the tools we have. So that was how it was. And by the end, I think, you know, you know that the war got turned back on during Anaconda.
1: Operation Anaconda
2: when larger forces of the 101st airborne and 10th mountain were like woohoo we're here where's the war at well there's like 150 idiots in a cave complex and a trench line on that mountain over there just give them three weeks and they'll walk on down because they don't have any food No, no no we're gonna go up there why is that i mean no, really, just wait a couple of weeks and they'll get hungry and they'll come on down.
1: Right. And that's what the locals would have told them to do.
2: Yeah. That's what they said. That's why they didn't participate. They're like, uh, I'm not going up there.
1: Yeah. And you're talking about, these were extremely brave men Yeah, who really did ride horseback into cannon fire they
2: don't know the difference. They believe that Allah is on their side, right? They're, they believe in the Viking Valhalla aspects of a glorious death, right? They had no fear. Zero point zero. Now, they weren't stupid. Now you know what I mean? Here, put your face in front of this muzzle. No, but as far as this is my task and my commander is riding along beside me, yes.
1: I mean, were any of you and your other fellow Green Berets just kind of watching this going, can you believe this? I mean, can you believe these guys are just riding charging a machine yeah, gun? Yes, tiny little horses, not even stallions, right? War horses, just these tiny little donkeys at these uh, machine guns. You spent that entire time becoming friends.
2: Right. We ate what they ate. We slept on what they slept on. That's the difference between what you kind of saw in the latter half of Afghanistan was these big barracks and comfort and you or you and we are we. We almost like dances with wolves, right? When Kevin Costner finally, you know, wears, you know, lives in the teepee and you know, puts warrior paint on and they wrestle together and they go hunt together. That builds the bond that makes unconventional warfare a very unique tool set that the regular military is not used to they, they don't they 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 can't fathom how to make those that can barely fight fight barely a little better because that will probably be, be enough to fight the enemy they're
1: facing I think it's part of what I'm saying is like you see these guys that you've you know you, you slept on rocks with and eaten with and then they're they're jumping on a little horse and they're gonna go run it some machine gun fire and you gotta be like, damn, I like that guy.
2: Incredibly brave humans, great fathers, love their kids, love the idea of being left alone. This is my village, right? That's, that, that's all of us.
0: Right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: See, right? They would share their last piece of rice with you. You know, these people are lost in time and tradition, and yet the world always comes there. To yeah. fight and rumble.
1: Yeah, and loses in the end. You know what I mean? It's
2: like why? It's like, uh, can we have a fight in um, Thailand on the beach there? I'd love to have a three minute war so we can go scuba diving. Am-
1: well, that is that's on its way. I don't know <laughs> if you're paying attention to the South China Sea, but you know co- coming to a war theater near you. Yeah. Did you ever get like feedback from command about progress and or lack of or Congratulations toward her.
2: I think, you know, there's kind of this famous report from Mark that talks about you just sitting around and doing nothing. At the time, we uh, we didn't have enough ba- battery power to send this description. So you had to use brevity codes and all kind of coding. AZ26Y meant my bundle came last night. You know what I mean? So there's all this stuff. So this picture wasn't being painted of what really was happening on the ground. And I think Mark finally wrote out in the open this report of basically, we linked up with a Mujahideen on horseback. I've watched a man missing a leg walk 10 miles in the snow with no shoes to get into the fight. We killed 120 yesterday. We're killing more. You know what I mean? It was just this holy crap. And that's what set what Mark didn't realize is all the way up to President Bush was reading it. So when he said it, that message, the tone at the end was kind of a big fuck you. We're barely surviving here. Yeah. Well, President Bush loved it, being from Texas. Every colonel and general read between the lines that a young captain was telling them to, you know, pound sand.
1: Yeah. Send more bullets. And Bush was like, go get her.
2: Yeah. That's when America knew something about horse soldiers. The other part is when they sent in, they were afraid that a captain was talking to a general like equivalent and the colonels convinced them to send in colonels and their communications sergeant is the one that leaned back and took a photo of the original, you know, guys on the Ridge on horses. Well, If you recall back in 2001, one megapixel cameras was a lot. That one megapixel going over the satellite system tied up the entire network for a few hours. Wow. So finally, they had a photo for Rumsfeld to show what America's response was.
1: Wow. Yeah, I remember that. Because everybody's like, what's
2: going on? Where's the battleships? Where's the tanks? You know, what America thought war should be. And then he was able to quell them. And then as things always go downhill, whoa, 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 slow them down. I've got to get my tanks and airborne troopers and everything back in here. And ta-da, twenty years later. ta
1: Yeah. Drop <laughs> a few a few daisy cutters later and
2: you know. <laughs> there you go. You know, there's nothing like a good remote sparsely populated area of the world to test all your stuff out usually it's in nevada you (laughs) know it's in the deserts in new mexico but hey we got a whole nother place that we can do Moabs.
1: you had to know that halliburton was calling cheney like please please i mean he was the ceo of halliburton before he was vice president i mean like you know, they seem to do rather well throughout the war that's the machine. look at the Roman army
2: right they had the they had the pleasure trail they had the uh cook trail they had the elephant saddle makers
1: you know what I mean this yeah, well, they shit in their hands too, so it was a little different with the Roman army so
2: but, but see that that is the history of warfare, right you know war is good business, and what does that mean yeah. it means it's the only business where you get to break things and you have to buy new things and then you break them again. Then you buy more new things and you break them again. So it is kind of a, um, a, a good center of destruction that spreads a lot of money around. Look, I didn't see any of that money, but somebody,
1: that's okay. I, yeah, you're a hero. And I've talked to many heroes on my program that I don't know about the money being spread around, but some of your, some of your body parts have been spread around, some, certainly some skin.
2: Well, now you know why I'm a big veteran's advocate. I saw the beginning of this. I sat at very senior levels when I retired, and I saw the laser fairness of war. Ah, you know, only four people killed today. Eh. Oh. Where are we going to go eat lunch, Jerry? Yeah, pass the salt. Ah, 10 injured. Ah, let's stop by the hospital and shake their hand, Bob. We became used to it. And so, so much so that the population became used to it. We had so many nonprofits. You had the wounded warrior project You had all of these mechanisms of private and the VA and $200 billion. Eh, nobody was rioting, forcing the government to change nothing. It just became, uh, you know, another day at job. Back to the Powell doctrine, you know, his philosophy was used a devastating cohesive collective force of military might to force surrender and capitulation and then don't get involved in the crap show afterwards because you can't unwind it and the military's job is to do military things what we found in afghanistan we asked company commanders to be mayors and sergeants to dig wells and lieutenants to manage international relief funds nation building and we put this burden on one side of the triad of the U.S. government and gave a pass to the others. And we pin this on the failure of the military. No,
1: we beat them in every battle. Who pins this on the failure of the military? If you
2: look at the narrative today, who are we trying to point a finger at?
1: I would point a finger at the executive branch, the certainly the do-nothing legislative branch who is done their job if their job is absolutely fucking nothing <laughs> and no cohesive strategy and and no understanding that we cannot export democracy it's not something you can export if who, who who gave it to us nobody we fought we died for it we value it when you go topple a dictator and say here's democracy they're like what's this i just wanted a better dictator and they don't appreciate it, and when you're putting lieutenants in charge of nonprofits and think that that's not their job exactly well,
2: I want higher. You know what I mean, here we are as veterans sitting here talking about these issues when there's not other levels of conversation reflecting backwards for the last twenty years. We're already preparing our modern forces for China and Russia. so if you think about Ranger School. Why was Ranger School started? To take the lessons of Vietnam and patrol-based operations to small unit leaders. So as lieutenants that were in Vietnam became colonels and generals, they knew that they needed some kind of mechanism to remind themselves of small unit fights and activities, right? So now look at us today. We are now out of Afghanistan. Everybody's boo-boo hurt. But those have been told to plan for big ships and big planes and big interstellar ballistic ninja ray missile thingies, and this small counterterrorism message, this small counterinsurgency thing is like, eh, that was yesterday. And the institutions of our military, do we think honestly that this tool of terrorism and small unit warfare, urban uh, guerrilla warfare is gone? No it's the most effective but the only ones talking about it are veterans they have no influence in policy or military decision
1: making well if we think it's gone we'll we'll get to see people using it against us for the foreseeable future effectively and, you know and and as far as yeah china and russia are i mean look if you ask me i think they're already coordinated i think that you know russia starting conflicts in ukraine and on our kind of eastern front there allows china to go in and take taiwan which they will do you know how i know they're gonna do it they said so they have time you know what i mean yeah you
2: know everybody's told us what they're gonna do is do we believe that they're gonna do it and what are we what do we have the capability or the desire or the resources that's in our best interest to counter
1: you think we could counter taking taiwan
2: i think um I am suspect of the political will today and the resources, given the amount of debt load that we have and how we have the ability to sustain heavy casualties and degradation of our ships and
0: things. Yeah, I
1: don't think so either. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, well, they had, um, it, it came out, what, uh, the beginning of the year, or maybe end of last year, they've had special operators there for like a year, year and a half. I mean, what, what are they showing the Taiwanese military to slow down China?
1: They're showing them a lot, and they're going to make it painful for them. It's
2: like fantasy football, right? We're over here wat-tiring what the Giants are going to do, and maybe we're going to get back good.
1: Any kind, of, any kind of team you're going to put together on that fantasy team would say there's going to be a catastrophic loss of life on both sides, and we don't have the political will for that, and yeah. we're, not, we're not going to do that. There'll be a, a, a very big... Price to pay for China, hopefully, but it's not going to be us giving them two carriers sunk to the bottom of the sea.
2: Good reason to cancel all those trillion dollars of debt, right?
1: Well, I mean, look, I mean, everybody talks about, you know, how China owns us. Look, they have less than a trillion out of $30 trillion in debt. So when we start canceling debt, we need to remember we owe ourselves 80 to 90% of that money, unfunded pensions, liabilities. So... That's who's not going to get paid, you and me. We, that debt is to us. Eh. Eh. You're just selling bourbon now. You're not worried about it. <laughs> you've started your own class warfare with a glass. I heard that they love exceptional
2: bourbon in China, especially in their casinos. So, you know what? They do. Uh, Macau. Exactly. See, I'm doing my part. Right, I'm a paid
1: You're doing the Ray Dalio method, where you're just not gonna, you're not gonna trash China too much because you're gonna sell them bourbon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
2: Delicious, cool. yummy bourbon. You know what I mean? There's, there's a lot of history about softening your enemy through social measures.
1: Yeah, I it worked on me. So tell okay. us about where you are with the bourbon. I mean, you're, you, you kind of you came back out of, out of the army and. You decided to become a very successful businessman. Congratulations.
2: I did decide. I hoped I'd become a very successful businessman. Number one, when you leave the military, we all have our journey. Imagine being from all walks of the United States, and you're thrown into this kind of basic training format that takes you from an individual thinker to a collective thinker, you know exactly where you are in the Borg, right? I'm a private, I got a corporal that's got a sergeant, that's got a, you know what I mean? A squad leader to a platoon leader, and there's a lieutenant that tells me what to do, and if I didn't get paid that week, I go see the pay clerk, and if I got a boo-boo, I'm walking over here to the medic, and goddamn, it, I love America. And let me sing ballads of heroism and admire that person over there with the bronze star. (laughs) Then one day you either retire, you get out and you're nobody. You don't have things upon your chest. People don't stand up when you enter a room or salute you when they walk by, right? You're going to the grocery store and it's like, get out of my way. Let me push you aside. So there's a transition emotionally and mentally and physically when you leave service about who am I and what can I do? And what I became frustrated was there was a big, big fat narrative that you were broken and only this government agency or this nonprofit has your solution. My God, let me hug you and get you inside of that. And what we forgot to tell veterans is, this is America, you can live the American dream you've been defending. Our grandfathers all came home and did what? They opened a plumbing store, they went to True Value, they got their loan for the first time. Look at the government programs that did work, the GI Bill, the VA home loan, vocational skills, not going back to college you know, and, and spending four years we we built these mechanisms to get our veterans into the economy. So as I looked across the spectrum with the Green Beret Foundation, we had these Green Berets that were now making a thousand dollars a day carrying a gun, but yet more of them were getting injured and killed as civilian contractors than were on active duty. And how do you invest eh, $3.2 million to make a good Green Beret? And then the country sheds them. There's no certificate. There's the med- The medics couldn't even get civilian evaluation. So I said, let's spend some money and design a program that teaches them how to be entrepreneurs. So we had a big fundraiser in New York City. We honored Roger Ailes, the head of Fox News at the time. Fundraising is easy. Find the richest guy, give him an award. They'll invite all the rich buddies. Go ahead. You know what I mean? You get money. So on the stage, I told everybody about the program and I said, I quit. If I can't walk off this stage and start a business and go through these journeys of transition, you deserve your money back. And that was 2015. So I walked off the stage my wife looks at me going, what the hell did you just do? I said, Hey, so I followed the steps. Number one, find a mentor. I did went to Yellowstone for a month to find myself. I did. Who was your mentor? My mentor is my business partner now, John Coco. Successful Green Beret agency, became a, a owner of some insurance businesses that went public, then private, then split. During that comeback to nature, forget the world experience, we went to our first craft distillery and it was awesome. It was the Grand Teton distillery in Driggs, Idaho. And we had just in a 10 day horse and mule pack train to the, up the Yellowstone river. And we thought we deserved those free tastings. And it became so much fun that we Googled where the next one was. And then the next one and the next one, it took us three weeks to get back to Tampa. And that's when John's mom said, you drunks need a hobby. (laughs) So we called up other guy, Mark and Bob, and we went to Scotland and we did the trail. But Mark's friend from the SAS had started a new Scotch distillery called Wolfburn. It was in Thorso, the northernmost city. So we said, hey, can we come up there? And we want to operate the stills. We want to learn how to make it, not just be a tourist at the Velvet Rope getting a free sample at the end. So he said, come on up. So we spent a few weeks there. We came home. Somebody asked, what's the difference between Scotch and Irish whiskey? So we went to Ireland. We went and see the Teeling Brothers, It just sold Kellbagan to Beam, I think Centauri for about 500 million and started their facility in Dublin. We went to Kellbagan, we went to Canuck, and we came home, we went into Kentucky, and we started to use our previous skills as a team to understand the opportunity of building a brand, building a product, you know, meticulously adhering to disciplines and principles, and then the competitiveness of a thousand other whiskey companies trying to attract a consumer. So it's called psychological operations. Yeah, psych ops. Yeah, marketing promotion, right? Messaging narratives, good guy, bad guy. Yeah, we already had the skills. So we launched our brand, we, we kind of formed the business, didn't even know what to call it nobody knew about horse soldiers until that movie came out and we had already been making some barrels and uh it kind of accelerated us bringing you know we finally decided on horse soldiers because we couldn't even think of another whiskey name wolf creek bear dung lodge you know (laughs) Tree leaf willow
1: wolf pack how
2: do you begat a name these days it's hard And then legally uh, capture the IP. So then the movie came out and we didn't even have anything in a bottle yet. And they, they, they wanted us to be part of the premiere in New York city. So we threw some stuff in a bottle. We took it up there. We got, had a lot of fun that I don't remember any of. And that next morning we flew back to Florida and we saw a distributor for the first time that talked about putting us in distribution. That was it. Good day. So our first year we went from 3,000 cases to this year, we finished with 60,000 six-pack cases. Um, we're in 14 states. We just broke ground on a $240 million, six million gallon facility in Kentucky, huh? right? We opened a restaurant here in Tampa, um, just received best restaurant according to Open Table. You know, all of these metrics, And I looked at the plan from day one. All we're doing is executing our plan. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to go deep, not wide. Who's ever played risk here? Yeah. Yeah. You just spread your men all across the map or you bunch up.
1: Take Asia and you'll win.
2: (laughs) Yes. See, and that's what we knew. We knew if we, why leave Florida until we own Florida? Why you know, leave Texas until we own Texas. So we've had a very deliberate marshalling of resources, money, you know, the number one ingredient in whiskey is money. I don't care what anybody says. It's not corn. It's not limestone water. It's money.
1: Well, how, how much do you think it costs to start up to begin with? Estimate? Five million dollars. Okay, that's, that, that's doable. For a bunch of broke vets, that's a lot of money. I mean, I, That's what I meant to say. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So and and what is 60 we said 600 cases you sold last year 60,000? 60, 60,000 60,000 six barrels. What is it what does that equal in revenue these days? 13-14 eh, million. And you plan on doing what in this year? 100,000. Okay. Oh, so big growth. Yeah, no, yeah, you're going to get to 20 million bucks, you know? That'll be great. Yeah, but I need 40 million to grow to 20 12
2: million. So I need barrels. I need every dollar I make instantly goes into producing more. Right. I, I if I could sell more, I could sell more, but I can't sell more because I don't have more to sell. Right. Right, so it's a stair step once again, it is about marshaling of resources and a dollar's a dollar. What helped our company? Most people don't realize we barely pay ourselves. Luckily, we have a retirement that augments that. So everybody wants to count all your dollars for you. Think that you're millionaires and trillionaires. And, oh my God, you know you guys are doing so well. We're like I don't, you know, we we're, we're fine. All of our needs as friends are met, but we have what we need, not what we want. So what we want to do is continue to grow the brand. We continue to invest into more production and more barrels. We continue out of pocket to pay for designers and engineers and schematics for our Kentucky build. You know what I mean? It's you have to invest.
1: And and Kentucky's not built yet, right?
2: No, no. It's going to take about three years.
1: Oh, okay. What's the production going to be there?
2: 6 million gallons, 250,000 cases.
1: I think that'll do it. Yeah. Just got to get it done. Get her done.
2: Get this. By the time it's built, say it's three years, by the time those barrels age, it's 10 years. Some of us may not be alive when it happens.
1: Yeah, Carl and I. You
2: yeah. <laughs> know what I mean? Yeah. But that's why we're building a legacy for our families. You know, I can't give them war medals. I can't give them an old footlocker full of you know, I love me, right? What can I give my kids? Right. Is a legacy in a business. And that's what happened after World War II. Soldiers came home. They, they admired each other at the VFW and they did parades on 4th of July, but they got back to work and that's what we're doing.
1: Well, it sounds great. I think you guys are well on your way. I've, I've tried your whiskey. You know, I have. It's good whiskey. Where can people get it? Tell us, uh, some people are going to want to order it so this is
2: the modern era there is uh the 14 states let me see if i can recollect here obviously florida to texas arizona nevada montana california Then this year will be in north carolina pennsylvania we're already in virginia new york michigan indiana illinois kentucky kansas So those are the physical places you should be able to find them at your favorite liquor store. If not say, why not? Where's horse soldier? You can go online. You have all the traditional online providers from reserve bar to caskers to wine.com. And then even on our website, it looks like us, but it's a third party that, you know, can be delivered horse soldier, you know, for those that are in the States that we're not physically in.
1: You have more than one, bottle right right so we have three
2: main ones we have the straight bourbon whiskey which is more of a higher rye so think of um eagle rare or woodsford it's got enough peppery or spice and it's a great mixer for your old fashions your manhattans then our second one it's like baby bear mama bear papa bear so mama bear is actually our first weeded at 95 proof Right, so good wheat bourbon is like your Weller's, your Larue's. You know, I think uh, Maker's Mark is a weeded. Your your Fitzgerald's, Pappy's, and then our barrel strength. And our barrel strength is full Papa Bear. It can range from 110 to 124. Right, makes you it makes you incredibly handsome. (laughs) After about four of these, we should really get into politics
1: and strong. You know what I mean? And then religion. (laughs) <laughs> and trigonometry, yes.
2: But, and then we have a fourth one that's called Commander Select. And these are aged, we've created a lot of relationships at the warehouses throughout Kentucky and the world. And we wanted something, our very first one, Commander Select 1, was an eight, eight-year-old wheated bourbon, beautiful pewter label in a box. And we charged $595. Wow. Why $595? That was the team number. ODA 595. And the money we received is what we donated back to the statue and America's response at Ground Zero. So then the next year, we only made 1,000 that first year. Next year, we did 2,000 of a 12-year-old. So we called it Commander Select Two. And we started getting invited to charities to kind of tell the story like I'm telling now. And then we would live auction a bottle. Some of our commanders select last year. I did for tunnels to towers and uh, Frank Siller $75,000 for two bottles.
0: Wow, right? That's a lot of that's a lot of bourbon. That, that's a, no, that's, that's very a of, good. That's a lot of money.
2: It's a way to tell a story that raises money for a good
0: cause. Well, yeah, Frank does phenomenal work. The tunnel to towers is great, he is, and you become
2: a very good friend.
0: I've done it for other
2: very quiet organizations that have quiet fundraising necessities that the world should never know about all the way to you know something for the green foundation to a local vfw you know what you want to have a bunch of motorcycle guys over no problem let's bring a couple signed bottles of the horse soldier and see if we can get a couple hundred bucks for you yeah so it's part of our culture to tell the story and to give back and uh it's 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 what we do. We just finished uh, a monument right next to our place here in St. Petersburg, Florida. It was one of the last pieces of World Trade Center steel recovered. I raised about $500,000 during COVID. Hard time to shake money out of the community during that time, but we did, and it's very beautiful. So this brand, it, we don't support one charity, we support them all.
1: Well. You do a great job. And yeah. for, for all the listeners that I have, and I know many of you have functions, organizations, if you're as tired of seeing Dick Fold get up on stage and <laughs> complain about how we caused the Lehman collapse, if you're as tired of that as I am, Scotty is a great guy. He does a great presentation, and, and Scotty Neal brings whiskey with him yes. without complaints. Yeah, he's not going to complain about, you know, he only made a billion instead of two billion. <laughs> he's just going to come up there and tell you a great story and give you some whiskey.
2: No good story ever started over a salad. You know you're at a crappy fundraiser when they start with a salad, right? Yeah, they're all crappy fundraisers. So, Scotty,
0: I just got to say, and, and you reminded me of raising the money during COVID, the story I think I've heard you tell before of how, how you got the mold to make the glass bottles, where that metal came from.
2: On every label, if you look down below on the paper portion, it says forged in fire. And there's a lot of hidden meanings in our bottles. Forged in fire, when we were looking at our own glass supplier, you could go to China for cheap, you could get it out of Mexico for cheaper, and it looks like everybody else's. How many times you looked on the back bar and you've seen you know, the same bottle, different label. So we wanted something. And then when we discovered how much it actually costs to design your own bottle, we about fell out of our chair. And I said, well, what is that? I mean, is that gold or is that spaceship meteorite metal or something? I mean, where does that, why does it cost so much money? And they told me the type and quality of steel that triggered my memory of what the the steel was from the World Trade Center. I made this deal that if I was to get some excess steel, can I get a discount? So it turned into kind of this, you know, um, this this kind of, we're broke vets, can you help a brother out? Not this marketing Madison Avenue, hey, we're gonna use it for this and people are gonna recognize it, really came about because we were that broke. And so all of our molds have World Trade Center steel, they form the bottle, it's not the metal label. And, you know, to those that it matters for, it does. Those that don't, I don't care. (laughs) I don't care. Whiskey's good in it too. And I didn't do it for the boost. I did it because we were a struggling veteran-owned company trying to begin a brand. And you needed some
1: steel, and the Fallen World Trade Center had some to spare. Well, you know, relationships. Relationships
2: matter. We have the statue at Ground Zero called America's Response Monument. The person in charge of all of those activities, his son's a Green Beret. You know what I mean? It's all in the family you just have to talk to people and and see where the touch points are we're very proud of it because it means so much to us we're very surprised on how it touches other people and then those that want to be critics and cynics i don't care (laughs) now if you want to tire about why my whiskey i would love to listen to your opinion about why my whiskey sucks because then I usually ask you, how much have you made? And can I taste your <laughs> exceptional whiskey?
1: Oh, yeah. People like tell you your whiskey sucks. Like- oh, yeah. They love to.
2: Really? This really? time of very brave men on the Internet uh, with lofty uh, goals and
1: opinions yeah. after they read
2: at least three books.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds like Mark Chodes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we've got We I got a lot of uh, anonymous turds and trolls on on the internet too. Yeah. That uh, and I, and I, and I've said to all my guys, if you can't say it in your name, don't say it at all.
2: I I don't mind people saying. I want to learn, right? I want to learn uh, what uh,
1: people think. Yeah, and the anonymous people don't say it, and they're not saying anything that anybody yeah. wants to hear.
2: So once again, I'm not fades. You know what I mean? I I try. I don't take it personal, right? Um, I'll take the Pepsi challenge any day of the week. I admire those that are better than me because that's how I'm going to get better.
1: Now, look, yeah, you, you have good bourbon. I'm a bourbon drinker. Thank you. That's why I'm having you on the show.
2: Four out of five dentists highly recommend my bourbon. <laughs> Who
1: is that fifth
2: dentist? I don't see. You yeah, just don't know. Probably because he's missing his teeth right now. I don't
0: know.
1: And, and it's always anonymous. That, they, that's you don't right. Know. Yes. So tell us, where can we, where can we find you? and your product online. So uh, where can we find you on Twitter?
2: Now remember, say it three times fast.
1: Horsesoldierbourbon.com. 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 Horsesoldierbourbon.com.
2: If you have a few drink, it sort of sounds like horse shoulder. Yeah. I've had them all. I've even been in meetings of very important people that my placard in front of me was whore's shoulder. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's like,
1: um, that's going to be your top of the line right there. That's going to be past command. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Y'all want to cry on it. (laughs) We do have a website. We have great content. If you want to go to our YouTube site, I like to consider us as old guy, Red Bull in 2019, we jumped into the 75th anniversary of D-Day and original world war two outfits and on, c47 cargo airplanes we went and got round canopy parachute qualified again our kids jumped with us before that we learned how to sail and we entered a regatta and got second bunch of army guys learning how to sail this year in march um, we got technical dive certified and we're working with the dod pow mia agency to dive in saipan on two old adventure wrecks and trying to recover the air crews and repatriate them with their families. Those are the things as friends who serve together, we still do. We get drunk together, we fight, (laughs) we go to each other's kids, you know, plays and volleyball games. This is a family of families business. And we have a lot of responsibilities to each other to be the best at the angle. One worries about sales, one worries about business, one does this. That's the truth of our brand is, you know, we're taking a stab at the American dream. And we're kind of cool because it's whiskey.
1: Sounds wonderful. Sounds yeah. Everybody's got a better life than I do. <laughs> it's Horse Yes. Scott Neal. An American hero and taking his time for us today. I very much so appreciate it. Buy his whiskey and, hey, invite him to come speak at your event. I don't think he's going to be as boring as one of your uh, demigod masters of the universe telling you about the German boon and what it's going to be worth. (laughs) And you might get some whiskey out of it. All right? I do a hell of a puppet show. (laughs) He does does (laughs) it with horses. All right, Scotty. And thank you all for joining us on the Woof den i hung up on warren buffett podcast if you liked what you heard give us a retweet give us a like if you don't like what you heard remember what i always say i don't care